Hello, friends of the Cornerstone Podcast. Uh, this is Jason here. I uh, just want to say thanks to everybody for listening in. We greatly appreciate it. We appreciate all the shares and the feedback uh, that we get from you. Uh, it really is uh, humbling and, uh, and such an honor to have you with us. Today, uh, I started a new series that uh, is called Embrace, and it got off to a great start. We had some technical issues with the audio on the front end, so we missed the first 10 minutes or so, so I'm going to give you just kind of a, a quick introduction to it, uh, but it's uh, very simply, it's a series that is going to hopefully call us to be more caring and more compassionate. Uh, it's a series about learning to love one another regardless of color. As I said this morning, you know, we're going to look at the different encounters uh, in Scripture where race was a dividing factor. and We're going to see how people act and, and react. We also want to look at this, uh, this, this very explosive topic from, from God's perspective. Along the way, we want to allow Jesus to show us how we must deal with this issue. I told our people this morning that, you know, for this series, I'm leaning on the works of others like Dr. Tony Evans, uh, Josh Graves from the Otter Creek Church, my good friend Jovan Barrington, and a few others uh, along the way. I stated from the outset this morning that, you know, I believe that this might not be my most popular series that I've ever preached, and, and I'm okay with that. Uh, because I believe there's the potential for some to simply wish we'd just move on and, and preach something else. Uh, you know, I think it's possible uh, because, you know, I, I fight those feelings as well. I mean, it would be much easier to just move on. It would be easier to continue with our series in Matthew and, you know, not feel bad about what we're doing. But the question I posed this morning to anyone who might be tempted to think that way is, is simply why. You know, why are we not comfortable discussing something that has the, the potential to destroy us? Why should we not talk about things that will move our faith from an intellectual ascent to, to action? You know, if, if this describes you, I might also ask, you know, is it, is it possible that you are harboring even, even the slightest seeds uh, of racism? Maybe not intentionally, maybe unintentionally in your heart. You know, I can imagine that probably most people have at least some of this going on. Along the way, I'm challenging our people, I want to challenge you as well, to examine your hearts. I want you to wrestle with the question, you know, do I harbor racist thoughts in my mind? Am I holding on to, to hatred of someone or, or some people group? And, and ask God to reveal those things to you. And if the answer is yes, then ask God to cleanse you as, as you go throughout this, this study. I said several weeks ago after the tragic events in Minnesota and Louisiana and the shooting of the police officers in Dallas that I feel that this is an issue that the church can no longer afford to turn a deaf ear to. If Jesus' bigger, biggest concern was getting people to love God and others, then it should be our concern as well. If, if Jesus was interested in standing up for those who feel oppressed, then it had better become our interest too. If Jesus was willing to, to reach across racial barriers, then, then so should we. And you know, here's the thing, if we're not willing 
to do those things, then maybe we should be equally willing to, to stop calling ourselves Christian. And that's a that's a tough truth, but it's something that I think we all need to, to wrestle with. I think one of the greatest needs for Christians today is to love people better, to love people God's way. And that's the, the aim of this series, that we're learning to love one another better, regardless of color, regardless of difference, regardless of, of background or socioeconomic status. And so I pray that this is a blessing to you. I pray that it, it gives you some help and some peace. There's some practical advice that comes toward the end, but I hope it is uh, really, really helpful to you. Enjoy Embrace Part 1. God bless you. For God is love. Wasn't that a beautiful moment when we sang those words just a few minutes ago? Wasn't that a powerful moment of worship where we just we were before the presence of God? Nothing else mattered in that moment. Together we felt the love of God as we sang about the love of God. That's, that's what I want people to know. No matter what their background is. That's what I want people to know. These verses are going to become our theme throughout this. You see, if, if we are going to be the people of God, then we must show people the love of God. Right? To claim to love God and yet not love people is to present a false witness. Loving people means more than just loving the people who you like. Loving people means that it means more than just loving those who, who talk like you, who like the same things that you like and dislike the same things that you like, who, who act like you, who, who vote like you. It means that you love them first because foremost... We have first been loved by God, warts and all. God loves us despite of everything that we've done. Everything that we've done, we've done, God still loves me. Thank God for that kind of love. We also love because when we encounter another person, it doesn't matter who they are, when we encounter another person, whether they are a believer or not, confess the name of Jesus or not, we are encountering someone created in the image of the Almighty God. Just as we have been created in the image of the Almighty God. And we must greet and treat people with those things in mind. Loving people means loving them no matter what they look like. No matter what they talk like, vote like, or act like. To claim to, to know and to love God and not love His people is to not know God. Do you realize that? I mean, that's what those, those verses are saying. He who does not love does not know God. Have you ever thought about that? That there is a way that even though we claim to know God, we can demonstrate that we really don't know God by the way that we treat others. We can claim that God is our Father, yet if I don't love people that are different than me, I am not showing the love of God, therefore I can't really know who God is. 
Because God is not that. God is something else. This was so important to Jesus. So important to Jesus that on the last night of his life, he gave the disciples a new command. Same thing. I'll read the white, you read the yellow. In John 13, last night of his life, he is just about to be arrested. He says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Jesus is about to die. He knows what is coming. He knows he is fixed to suffer in agony. He's just washed his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. Easily, it could have been about him, and nobody would have made any big deal about it, right? I mean, he's about to die, and he knows it. Okay, inmates on death row, they're given whatever they want to eat before, they're, before the execution because, you know, that's kind of it. Jesus, before he was about to die, washed feet, humbled himself, served others, put others ahead of him, took the lowest position, and he said, look, Here's one last thing that you need to know. One commandment that I want you to know that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, that means you be the one to put the towel around your waist. You be the one to put others first. You be the one to humble yourself. You be the one to go and serve others no matter what they are, what they look like, where they come from. You love people. By this, people will know that you are my follower. They will know that you are my disciples because of the love that you have for them. It was so important to Jesus that he wanted them to know this before, before he died. And Jesus shows us what it looks like. Jesus shows us what it looks like to love. He shows us what it looks like to love those of another race in John chapter 4. This is one of the the great stories throughout the Bible, one of the great stories in the, in the book of John. And so let's just start reading together. Let's read 1 through 9 of John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making, more, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and he started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus is 
traveling. Okay, he's moving away. He's headed back toward Galilee. He's leaving Judea. He's headed back to Galilee. And verse 4 tells us that he had to go through Samaria. Now that's important. Because a lot of Jews in Jesus' day, they would not go through Samaria. They would walk around Samaria in order not to have to go through Samaria. Not to have to associate, not to have to see these people, these, these Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And vice versa. Because the Samaritans at one time were the, the pure Jews, but off in captivity, they intermarried. They had interracial marriage. Now then, when the Jews went back home, went back to Jerusalem, those people that had intermarried and had children and all of this stuff, they were looked at as second-class citizens because they had married outside of their own race. They had married outside of the Jews. They had mixed with the, the Gentiles. And so the Jews said, you're not pure. You're not clean. You're not one of us. You have created a, a separate race. And they hated them for it. They referred to them as the dogs of Samaria. And that's why they would not go through Samaria. They would walk around it. They would travel miles and miles and miles out of their way to get where they wanted to go just to not take the shortcut through Samaria because they did not want to associate with these people. Now then, John tells us about this well. And this well is, is important. You know, it's, 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 it's no ordinary well. It's the well of, of Jacob. And we think, well, that's just, you know, okay, that's an interesting detail. But have you ever stopped to think about why it's there? He's passing through Samaria. Here is this well. He stops. He asks this woman for a drink. But again, this is no ordinary well. Remember, the Samaritans hate the Jews. And the Jews hate the Samaritans. But both Jew and Samaritan love and respect their father Jacob. He is their patriarch. He is of their, their lineage. So in order to make this thing work, Jesus met her on common ground. He met her at a place of agreement. And it's that both Jew and Samaritan love and respect their forefather, their patriarch, Jacob. He meets their, her there, and he wants a drink from her cup. Now that is, that is huge. That is huge because the Jews look at the Samaritans as second class, as lower, as beneath them, as dogs, as mongrels. They want nothing to do with them because they're unclean. They've defiled themselves, and yet you have Jesus being willing to put his Jewish lips on a Samaritan cup. He's asking her for a drink, and she's shocked. We know that because she says, hey, look, what is, you know, Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. What's going on here? But he meets her there at this, this common 
ground. He asks her for a drink. She's so shocked that he, a Jew, would ask her, a Samaritan, for a drink. Now then, he doesn't identify himself as a Jew, so he obviously is one. By the way he dresses, by the way he talks, his, his accent, those sort of things. But notice in this encounter, and here is a huge lesson for us. Notice in this counter, encounter that Jesus stayed who he was. Jesus didn't change who he was in order to reach her. He was visibly, he was verbally a Jew. He didn't give up his own creation in order to talk to a different type of creation. He was able to maintain his racial and cultural identity. But even though he maintained all of this, he didn't let it get in the way of what his father called him to do. Which was to reach out to this woman. To reach across racial barriers to someone who is different than him who the rest of his culture would not reach out to. Because the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And so here's the, here's the application for us. God is not calling any of us. God is not calling any of us to give up how he made us. He is not asking you to be anything other than, than what He made you. God is a tremendous, God is the best artist the world has ever known, yes or no? I mean, you look around at our world and you see it, God. I mean, who's amazed by a sunset? Okay? God, in His brilliance, created race. What does that tell us? Race matters to God. If race matters to God, then race should matter to us. We should celebrate our race. Celebrate how it is. Yes, absolutely. Celebrate our race. Celebrate how God made you. Because God created you. He gave you life. He created you in His image. And we must celebrate that. Doesn't mean we've got to agree on everything. But there are some things that we can that we can agree on. I want you to listen to uh, to Dr. Evans. He's going to talk about some things that must change. It is technically incorrect, technically, to call yourself a black Christian or a white Christian or Hispanic Christian. Because then you make your color or your culture an adjective. It's the job of an adjective to modify a noun. So if you put Christianity in the noun position and your color or culture in the adjectival position, you have to keep shaping the noun so that it looks like the adjective that describes it. So if your color or culture stays in the adjectival position, you got to keep shaping Christianity to look black or to look white or to look red or to look yellow because that's the adjectival description you've given it. Your Christianity must always be in the adjectival position. Your color and culture must always be in the noun position 
so that if anything must be adjusted, it is the noun of your humanity and not the adjective of your faith. You and I are to define our, our humanity in terms of our faith, not our faith in terms of our humanity. Jesus stayed who he was, but he operated from heaven's point of view. Isn't that good? I love Tony Evans. I've loved him for years. A few minutes later, he goes on to say, don't let the fact that all others from your race won't drink from a cup keep you from drinking from a cup. Don't be so committed to your own race that you operate outside the Christian faith. If anything must be adjusted, it's our, it's our attitude. It's not our faith. But it's our attitude we have toward one another and toward those that we come in contact with. So let's talk about the sociology of Jesus for a minute. This woman, she is awed by the fact that Jesus has asked her for a drink. Okay? She's awed by the fact that here is a Jewish man asking a drink from a Samaritan woman. And as my friend George G. says, he hadn't even given her any Bible yet. Okay? She doesn't even really know who he is. All she knows is here's this Jew in Samaria. He obviously is sticking out like a sore thumb, and he's asked her for a drink. A lot of people want to tell others about Jesus who aren't willing to take a drink out of the cup. Jesus was willing to drink from her cup. A lot of people might say, I want to get your soul to heaven but I don't want to deal with you down here on earth. I'll witness to you, I just won't eat with you. I'll talk about God with you, but I won't drink with you. Jesus hasn't even talked about God yet. How he is dealing with her, his, his sociology, his actions, his sociology gave validity to the theology that he's about to drop on her. He's going to do what his own race won't do because it's the right thing. How do we know that? Because his disciples are nowhere to be found. They wouldn't eat the Samaritan food. So they went somewhere else to get their lunch. So Jesus now, he begins to talk to her. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? And his sons and his flocks and herds drank from it. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give them 
will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. He makes the transition to the spiritual. Do you see that? He's willing, he's already willing to cross his, this racial divide that exists. He's willing to drink from the same cup as her. And now he transitions from the common, from the earthly, to the spiritual. He establishes credibility in her life. And he tells her about this, this living water. And of course, she wants this living water. But she wants it so she doesn't have to keep coming back to this well at noon, the hottest part of the day when nobody will see her. Jesus tells her to go call her husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You've had five. And the guy you're shacking up with now, he's not your husband either. Okay, as, as Tony Evans puts it, he's done going from talking about water to who she's sleeping with. Okay, he's gone from preaching to meddling. There we go. You with me now? He's meddling in her affairs. <laughs> he confronts her sinfulness, her, her impropriety. But the thing is, he never could have gotten that far if he wasn't willing to drink from her cup. His sociology opened up the door for his theology, for his discussion about God. Now she says, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Well, yeah. Look at verse 19. Because there's some crucial things here. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain but you say the place where people must worship is Jerusalem. Now then, when it says our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that you, that you in the original text is plural. You say our, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say you ever heard that you people those people them not us not me those people say where people must worship is jerusalem jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem you now here it is again you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, when He comes 
He will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one, the one who is speaking to you. She brings up race earlier. You're a Samaritan. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Jesus has no comment about it. Now, she's bringing his dad into the picture. Okay? Now she's bringing his father into the picture. She says, where we worship. She's talking about Mount Gerizim. Okay? That's important to the Samaritans. That's where their, their temple, that's where their temple was located. We worship there. That's where we go to church. You people, you go to church in Jerusalem. We go to church over on Mount Gerizim. You go to church into Jerusalem. We were raised different. Our forefathers said so. My daddy told me that, and his daddy, and his daddy, and his daddy, and his daddy told it. He passed it down to us. That in order for us to get close to God, my daddy was told by his daddy, who was told by his, and by his, and by his, that if we want to get close to God, the place where we go to church is over here. And the place where you go to church is over there. It's part of my history. It's part of my, my background. You see, when she brought up race the first time, he had nothing to say. When she brought his daddy into it, she got a whole lecture. Jesus clarifies the situation in verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. He says, all of that tradition, all of that's, that's wrong. Theology, what we believe about God, must rule anthropology, what we believe about man. And it must dictate our sociology, how we deal with one another. Does that make sense? Our theology should be the standard. What I believe about God, that's the standard. What I believe about God is that God is love, and if I am one of God's people, then I am to show the love of God to all people. That rules my anthropology, which says that, okay, if, if, if that's the standard, that means anthropology means nobody is different than me or lower than me in status. That means that each and every person that I come across with, come across, is a person created in the image of God Almighty. And that means it rules my sociology, which means it affects the way that I act around you. It affects the way that I treat you. It affects the way that I say to you. It means that I hold my tongue at times. It means that I encourage at other times. It means that my heart, my heart must be in line with the things of God. That's, that's what that means. You see, when Jesus is saying, when you bring father into it it has to have two qualifications it has to have spirit which means the right heart and it has to have truth an objective standard and the truth of god is the objective standard you see our problem when we when we separate when we divide for race or whatever reason we're operating on illegitimate standards that are not rooted in God. 
They're rooted in culture. They're rooted in history. They're rooted in, in, in background. Now, then some of that may be factual, okay? I, I am white. You might be black. You might be Hispanic. But the question we must ask, is that the standard? Is that the, is that the truth? Just because you were raised in a certain way, once how we were raised disagrees with what God said, then how we were raised is wrong. Does that make sense? If it disagrees with God, then it's wrong. So now we come to the the end of the story. He goes on to share who he is. You know, he is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. She runs back to town, and she tells everybody about this Jew who is stopped by Samaria and asked for a drink from her cup. And they believed her. Or at least they're intrigued by her story. And it says they all came running out to meet Jesus. Now, meanwhile, the disciples come back. And they're like, hey, what in the world has gone on here? What has been happening, Jesus, while we were gone? We take our eyes off on you for one minute, and look who you're mixing with, okay? What in the world happened, Jesus? They have this talk about food. Jesus gives them a spiritual truth. And they see these people coming out. This woman leads the whole town to Jesus. And verse 39 says that many in town believed because of her testimony because of this man who was willing to cross a racial divide and drink from her cup and tell her about the love of God and so Jesus the result is that Jesus stayed two more days showing them the Samaritans how to love his father and showing his disciples how to love like the father it's an incredible story I'm so appreciative of, uh, of this new perspective on this story. I'm so grateful for, for Tony Evans and his work. So the question then becomes, because I honestly, I, I, I was trying to think about this, I've tried to think about this for the last couple of weeks, and I cannot think of one person, not one single person in this church comes to mind who would disagree that racism is wrong. I cannot... I cannot imagine anybody within this church thinking that. I mean, I just, uh, I feel like I know you well enough. I feel like we see your hearts. And I can't imagine anybody saying, wow, what you said today, man, that's crazy stuff. I don't think that's, I can't imagine, I can't imagine that. Now, could be, but I can't imagine it. So the question then becomes is what can I do? Okay, I agree that it's wrong, but now what do I do about it? Have a great afternoon. Wouldn't that be bad? <laughs> Come back next week. Do that anyway. But I'll tell you now. What can I do about it? Well, I have this friend from high school, uh, this uh, black female. Her name is Tanya Johnson. I've known her since seventh grade typing class in the Atlanta area. And... Uh, 
she knew that I was talking about some of this stuff, and so we've exchanged some messages back and forth on Facebook. She's been very encouraging to me. And, um, she, wanted, she knew I had preached about this several weeks ago, and so uh, she wanted to, uh, I shared my message with her, and uh, she, uh, she read it, and she was very encouraged, and she offered some encouraging things, and it was, um, it, it's talking about the things that we can do, these, these practical things things. And so she gave me some, some great advice, five or six things, and here is what you can do. Here is what I can do as a, a person of one race dealing with other people, other races in our community. Here is how we show the love of Jesus to others. She says this, she says, tell them, us, tell them to call that, that black friend and, and see how they're doing. Maybe especially when something crazy happens in our country. Call them. Send them a text message. Just say, hey, I'm, just, I'm thinking about you. I want you to know I'm praying for you. I want you to know that you're, you're on my mind today. She says, tell them to take some cookies and water to the police station to show support of what they're doing. Tell them to speak up when someone is using racist rhetoric. Tell them to hug someone who looks downtrodden because of recent events. Tell them to make attempts to befriend those that are different than they are. Tell them to break bread with people of, of other cultures. And I so very much was appreciative of her, her practical advice. And do you know what all those things are? Those are just the love of Jesus being shown to somebody. That's what that is. And so I'm so grateful to talk those things that, 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 that she shared with us. But it leads me to ask a question. And just, just in your own thought process, think, think about this. I know I'm, I'm way over. We're almost done. But when was the last time, when was the last time that you sat down for a meal with someone of a different race? If you can't remember, then maybe it's time for us to change that. You see, we as the people of God, we can no longer afford to be silent on such an issue. We can't sit by and hope that it's somehow going to magically get better because we know that's not going to happen. In World War II, there was a, a pastor, theologian, who became a spy and eventually a martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he, he spoke out against the Nazis because the church in Germany, the Reichschurch, would not. The Reichschurch was supporting Hitler and their racist rhetoric and their racist actions, sending people to concentration camps and all that. And so he and, and some of his Friends, they started something called the confessing church, meaning that we will confess Jesus, we will confess love, we will confess that we are to speak up and stand up people. And he was, they spoke out on behalf of the Jews and the Poles that were being mistreated at first, but then eventually sent off to concentration camps. Got him sent to a concentration camp where on April 8, 1945, he was hung until he died. But this is what... Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about this. He says, silence in the face of evil is, ev is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless 
Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And so we must be the people who speak. The church must be the people who speak. The church must be the people who act in the name of Jesus Christ. Now we have this time where we come together around the the table. A time when nothing else matters. Where here there is no Jew nor Gentile, there is no slave nor free, there is no male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And we gather together around the table and we celebrate the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ.